This episode of Inside Transportation is sponsored by Ford Motor Company. Built on the belief that freedom of movement drives human progress. From connectivity to autonomy, AI to machine learning, Ford has one simple goal, to improve mobility for its customers. To learn more about Ford's work in mobility, autonomous vehicles, and their global efforts to improve mobility for its customers, visit corporate.ford.com. That's corporate.ford.com. The Inside Transportation Podcast is also sponsored by Fenwick & West. Fenwick & West is one of the world's first and leading law firms dedicated to technology and transportation. Learn more about how Fenwick can help companies tackle the complex, legal, and business issues of autonomous transportation at Fenwick.com. That's F-E-N-W-I-C-K.com. Thank you for listening to the Inside Transportation Podcast, a production of Inside.com. This is our weekly podcast where we discuss transportation trends that you need to know about to stay ahead of the curve. My name is Johan Marino, and I'm the writer of the Inside Transportation and Inside Electric Vehicles newsletters, and I am joined here by my co-host, angel investor, podcaster, and the man behind the at VC Braggs Twitter account, Jason Calcanis. How's it going today? Absolutely. It's me. I have been busted. Uh, it's, go- it's going great. It's been a crazy day for me. Yes, now yes. that everybody it knows, it seems I like you put in quite a but I, you put in quite some work. <laughs> yeah, I spent like twenty grand, twenty grand hiring a team of writers, um, and uh, yeah, you know, it's I, it was a lot of work for me. But uh, you want some breaking news, Johan? Yes, let's get it. I am not VC Braggs. I what? Just, what? I am not VC Braggs. <laughs> I did that as a joke, and nobody can handle satire anymore. But with us today is. My friend Sonny Madra, uh, and he works at Ford X. Welcome back to the pod, Sonny. Hey, great! Thanks for having me. And uh, I'm just in shock. I, I thought it was definitely you. <laughs> did yeah. you really? No, you did. I read the Business Insider article about you being behind uh, at VC Brags. Oh my God! Did they really pick it up? <laughs> oh, no, no, I'm just, I'm just joking. It seems like something Business Insider would it's write a, about. It's a Business Insider um, headline that writes itself, 100. <laughs> but let's get into it. Yes. What's the news, John? Yes, yes, yes. So one question for all of us here on today's pod. We start off today's podcast with a million dollar question. Where do electric scooters go on the road? As new forms of micromobility are adopted, how can we redesign streets to increase safety and mobility? Moping it up to uh, Sonny, our guest, who is the vice president of Ford X, which is a division of Ford. Any insights, Sonny? Yeah, you know, I think this was like a question that is best framed pre-COVID and, and you know, post-COVID. And really, you know, the way to think about it is like, look at what the cities are doing right now when they're closing down streets and, you know, redeveloping them and, and the impact that that's happening. So for me, I think scooters belong on, you know, redeveloped streets that have dedicated lanes for micromobility. And if you've been on, you know, Valencia and San Francisco, or you've been in, you know, Palo Alto or Los Altos or Menlo Park uh, in the Bay Area, you're seeing the incredible number of people leveraging micromobility, not just scooters and, and the, you know, sort of the peace that's created when we give dedicated um, infrastructure to micromobility. So that that's where I am. And I think, you know, we've seen the stark difference between how we had it before COVID and how we're having it, you know, post COVID. Yeah, we need dedicated micromobility lanes on the road. Because imagine making riders feel safe and have a place on the road. Because right now in California, for instance, um, it's illegal. And correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Sonny, but it's illegal to ride on the sidewalk. 
And I've seen bird support legislation that would allow riders to cruise on the sidewalk. And then I've also seen police officers give citations to riders in certain cities like Los Angeles for riding on the sidewalk, right? And I think those moments where somebody might receive a citation or, or just be unclear of where to you know, even operate uh, their scooter on the road is, is not beneficial to the growth of micromobility. And I'm also thinking, hey, you know, is it really the right place to put a small, compact electric scooter on the same road with a 45,000 um, ton like truck? Um, any insights, Jason, on that? Any, any thoughts? Well, I mean, you know, the, it's, every city is different and the density of cities is very different. So if we were in Arizona, as an example, uh, or somewhere very spread out, you know, there's nobody walking on the sidewalk. So to put the electric scooter in the street, even in a dedicated lane, to me, doesn't seem to be as logical as to use the big empty sidewalks. Now, in a dense place like Manhattan, you know, well, obviously they can't be operating on the sidewalks. You can barely get through, you know, I'm talking pre-pandemic, you could barely get through, you know, walking down Fifth Avenue or Broadway, let alone there being, you know, bicycles or anything uh, with wheels on the sidewalk. So I think this is a very local thing. And, you know, when you see somebody reasonably riding their bicycle on the sidewalk, do you have a problem with it? No, of course not. Uh, when you see somebody like, gunning it. So there's some common sense that comes in here. And I think it's going to be, it's one of these things that should be regulated locally. And we need to be encouraging more forms of micromobility. And I'm with Sunny on, I think, thinking about the third street promenade, which used to have parking spaces outside of all the places, you know, all the storefronts and the storefront owners were like, oh my God, you're going to close the parking spaces. What will happen to our stores? your stores will get busier because it become a destination and people can bring their kids and they can take a bicycle or a scooter or they can park in a garage. And that's been, I think, one of the wonderful, uh, if I dare say that, that, you know, there could be good things still in the world. One of the wonderful things that a, a crisis does, like a pandemic or a financial crisis, is it opens up people's minds to new possibilities. And there is a great new possibility of thinking about streets that uh, are completely for pedestrians or streets that are completely for bicyclists. When you when you go to Denmark, as an example, I, I was amazing to me that the waterfront was reserved for bicycles. You know, and then you're in Manhattan, the FDR, the waterfront is was reserved for like the elevated highway and cars. In other places is reserved for restaurants, right? Every city has to really think this through and and I think it's a great moment in time for people to do that. Yeah. So one thing I was going to mention real quick was Revel, which was this moped company. They've added a safety quiz and mandatory helmet selfies before a rider can rent a moped. What are some other ways we can kind of increase safety when it comes to micromobility? Any thoughts, mm -hmm. uh, Sunny? Yeah, I think, um, you know, that's a great example. You know, there was some um, some really, you know, kind of terrible news out of Manhattan a couple of weeks ago that led to that, right? They had a couple of deaths with, you know, folks were riding around without helmets and whatnot, it, you know, and I think mopeds start crossing into, you know, a different area than, than you know, traditional micromobility. But, um, you know, what that really, you know, surfaces is that 
the the regulations that are around these things that are tied to speed and again the dedicated roads and how they operate i think it, it really comes back right to that point the regulations need to be adopted as jason said city by city and so there's probably some national standards that you know would be put out by by um you know by some of the regulators but city by city every they have to look at you know their infrastructure the changes that they've made uh because of the crisis and and how people can operate but the the good thing is like all of the different companies are starting to you know work around this and working i think them having a quiz and them also you know um showing people that uh you know you know, these tragedies can happen. And if you have to kind of put safety first is really, really important. So um, it's, it's, it's really going to be important for that to the, those regulations to come in place very quickly and for the companies to adopt uh, those regulations and, and implement what come with that. Yeah. Warnings are important. When people buy a pack of cigarettes, it says like the surgeon general says, this is a bad thing for you to do. When you go to a beach and there's been a shark attack, they say there's been a shark attack at this very beach. Um, you know, like beware. Uh, there are and at where there if there are riptides at a beach, they give you a sign. If you're getting on a, a scooter that you know, uh, or a Vespa or whatever, you know, 35 mile an hour, I think is the limit on those. Um, or maybe 34 miles an hour, 50 cc's or 49 cc's. I can't remember when I had my scooter what the exact uh, regulation was where you just needed a driver's license. But some people haven't been on those before, and they need to understand that. There's a big difference between 35 miles an hour and 10 miles an hour, 15 miles an hour. Um, And then you're always going to have some people who are, you know, randomly doing goof off kind of behavior. And we have a different standard here in America. In America, you know, if you uh, do something stupid, it's the fault of the company. And if you do something dumb with a, a motor vehicle or a scooter in Europe or in Australia, they they say wow you should not have done that you knew better right and and so we just have this very unique culture here where we kind of blame the company but i think this personal responsibility is a big part of this and jason if i if i can share like you know coming like from the vehicle industry yeah. it wasn't until 1968 that there was a first federal seatbelt safety standard right. and so you know the speed at which we're moving in micromobility is incredible uh, so we, you know, I do want to give all the companies kudos out there that they're adapting quickly. Because if you think about, you know, automobiles, it took sixty plus years for yes. them to get there. Oh, and, and my dad, I, I literally got in arguments with my dad all through the eighties, trying to convince him to wear a safety belt, and he refused. And it was like, I'm not wearing that. And it was like, why not? And it was like, because. And I don't, I never wore one before. And it was like, yeah. You, you might want to wear it it's there for a reason dad <laughs> but really <laughs> sounds like mass today <laughs> it, it was it, it, i think actually there were people who you know were they felt like it, they were too constricted with um the three-point harness right and actually you know in um some of the high-end cars you know they have the four-point harness i think a, you know anytime you go on a racing track you wear a four-point harness right so you know there, there's a balance between like what's cumbersome or whatever, but putting on a helmet is not a big deal. And that, and we have law enforcement to do that. I, I think actually Revel, is that the name of the company is Revel? I think they, yes. they, they reacted super quick. I give them a lot of credit. And when you see what they're getting tagged with, like this is their responsibility. It's like, actually, no, it's the rider's responsibility to put a helmet on, right? There, there's some amount of responsibility on the user. Um, and I think it's unfair that the company got dinged um, in a lot of these cases. And we might want to think about on a driver's license that I always found it peculiar that 
you could just drive on a, a Vespa without, you know, if you took the, if you had a driver's license, you could drive a scooter because it really is two different experiences. Um, and mm-hmm. ma- perhaps it's time to rethink that as well, right? Maybe we, and in Europe, they let people drive Vespas earlier, not cars, because there's, you know, on a responsibility basis, a 15 or 16 year old on a Vespa is better or, you know, any, whatever you want to call it, a, a scooter, um, is better than them being in a, you know, an SUV as an example. Um, maybe when they're first learning how to ride, right? It might be a better way to start. Yeah. And one thing I was going to mention real quick was last week we talked about AB 1286 and they actually oh amended that. So oh good. like these uh, micro mobility companies will be able to issue liability waivers to all riders and users, um, which was something that wasn't the case last week. Right. Um, yeah. Sonny, do you have any insights on that? Cause I know, you know, being a part of spin, I'm sure that was something that came across your desk. Um, any, any general thoughts there as far as like liability goes? Yeah. You know, this is like sort of, uh, you know, building on top of like AB5 as well, right? Like sort of what we've seen right. happening in the ride hailing space. And so, uh, yeah, you know, AB86 was, was, it was scary because, you know, again, uh, it's that the liability um, being trans, not being able to transfer to the rider. And that's a challenge because, you know, uh, imagine you did that in other mm-hmm. industries, right? So imagine every uh, you know automobile accident that happened, the liability of putting on the seatbelt was a responsibility of the automobile manufacturer, right? So I do think that, you know, there has to be a balance. It can't be, you know, all the way in one direction, all the way in the other direction. But, I you know, I, and, um, you know, that amendment that they made to that is, is really positive because I think what it would have done is, you know, almost like sort of what we saw happen in Ride Hill where Lyft and Uber were about to pull out of Ride Hill in, yep. in California. We could have seen something very similar happen with micromobility companies saying, you know, we can't take that liability on. Uh, we, we don't control um, every single person at the end point and we can't like make it sort of mandatory to wear a helmet uh, from a standpoint of we can't enforce it through some technology or something. So uh, I'm, gl- I'm glad to see that they made that change and I think it'll be positive. And I think, you know, again, there's other aspects that we can build around it and leverage, um, you know, just newer technologies that are coming out to understand if people are being unsafe and ban them. You know, I was uh, I was in LA a couple of weeks ago and I saw people, you know, funny enough, Jason mentioned on the third street promenade riding scooters there but you know sort of being reckless and there's enough technology there to stop people that are doing that stuff and ban their accounts so i do think you have to kind of strike a balance on those things yeah i mean it's it's obvious that the technology i I always said this about uber as an early investor people would be like oh my god something terrible happened in an uber and i was like when something terrible happens in uh, a, a ride sharing with an app there's an app tracking you know, second by second where that vehicle is. And you know that-, that and who's in it. And who's, and who's in, in, it, in it, right? And their credit card and the driver. Like, whereas with the with the yellow cabs in New York or, uh, you know, what we call dollar cabs uh, or gypsy cabs, they were called in Brooklyn when I grew up, you know, those car services, which were run illegally, uh, where you just pay cash to people to drive you places, was like the original <laughs> illegal ride sharing in the 80s and 70s in New York City in the boroughs because you couldn't get yellow taxis in the boroughs. Um, you know, these uh, were much more dangerous. And it's the same thing here. You know, when you try to take a scooter on the Third Street Promenade, it has GPS and it stops. And I was with a friend who had come to meet me for a coffee on the Third Street Promenade. And he's like, I can't get my scooter to work. And we were like trying to figure it out. And he take, took out the app and he's like, oh. And I told him, you have to 
carry this, walk the scooter over to the, you know, whatever side, Santa Monica Boulevard side, and you can turn it on over there. So there's lots of things you can do and, and there's personal responsibility. And one of the things we're going to see over time is cities are in competition with them, with each other in America. And so whoever gets this right builds a better yep. experience for their citizens. And I think this dovetails with, you know, the Michigan story where they want to design a stretch of road for self-driving cars. So you're going to see cities that want to attract entrepreneurs or a higher quality of life for their citizens, perhaps, you know, get these things right. And there's a competition between cities and, you know, whether it's Uber or Spin or Revel, they don't need to be in every city to win. They need to be in most cities to win. And this is, you know, what we'll see happen, I predict. And, and California blinking uh, and not... Uh, and doing the stay uh, for Uber and Lyft, I think, was very revealing. Do you think, Jason, that we're going to see dedicated roads in these cities for autonomous shuttles? Like, that's the first way we're going to be seeing, that's a, that's like, self-driving cars in modern cities? I, I think that's that's going to be a given. Now, whether that happens in this country or another country is the question, right? Because there might be other countries where... You know, you're an authoritarian country might have an easier time saying we're gonna China. this city's, you know, this road. Well, I mean, people have talked about China would have an easier time saying this district is gonna be for self-driving. You know, they wouldn't they'd be able to make unilateral decisions. And they, you know, they make that when they're building I'd say Singapore. Mm, Singapore would Singapore. be the another place yeah. where yeah. well, that's the city of the future. And see that that's a very interesting one because Singapore um is so aggressively courting the world's companies, founders, and talented entrepreneurs that when HBO's Westworld season three was being filmed, uh, Lisa Joy, who I know um, from the show, who's the writer and the co-creator of the show, um, she said she picked, they wanted the city of the future for all those really cool scenes with the VTOLs and everything. And they just picked Singapore because they didn't have to build a set. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it, wow. it looks like when you watch Westworld and you watch the trailer, like all of these crazy like locations are Singapore and Singapore can just, you know, uh, unilaterally say, here's how we're going to do it. And, um, you know, and Europe might be the hardest place to do it, right? Like they may be the most resistant. Uh, so it's, it's, it's going to be a global competition. And that's what makes, I think, this exciting for entrepreneurs is they can just go to those areas and, and test these things early uh, and safely, right? It's, Putting only self-driving cars on a road would, even today, would make it 100% safer. And I just drove down to LA and I was down there for 10 days. I didn't want to fly because of COVID. So I drove and I drove my Model 3 and I put the self-driving on and it was wonderful, you know? If anything, it's it's too sensitive now. So it turns itself off because I think too many people were abusing the system that they made it very sensitive. So I had my hands on the steering wheel and it would, you know, if I didn't move it enough, it, it didn't think I was there. So that's like a, an interesting little sign, I think. Yes, yes, yes. Well, going on to our next topic after the break, we're going to be talking about the Cash for Clunkers program as uh, the presidential candidate is rethinking bringing back this uh, program that would let people exchange their old cars for a newer, more fuel-efficient vehicle. Um, when we come back here on the Inside Transportation Podcast, we'll be discussing that. Stay tuned. Hey, everybody. I just want to let you know that this episode of Inside Transportation is sponsored by our friends at the Ford Motor Company built on the belief that freedom of movement drives human progress from connectivity to autonomy. Ford has one simple goal, and that's to improve the mobility of its customers. Ford has been using technology to shape the future of transportation for over 100 years and is dedicated to solving the world's most pressing mobility issues. 
What you might not know is that Ford has a series of divisions that make these visions a reality. Ford X is Ford's venture incubator that unites entrepreneurs, designers, and engineers to shape the future of transportation. Ford's City Innovations team brings innovative ideas to life through community workshops, crowdsourcing initiatives, and citywide mobility challenges. And SPIN, a property of Ford, brings e-scooter sharing to cities and college campuses. So here's your call to action. To learn more about Ford's work in mobility, autonomous vehicles, and their global efforts to improve mobility for its customers, visit corporate.ford.com. That's corporate.ford.com. Hey, everybody, let me take a moment to thank Fenwick and West. They're one of the world's first and leading law firms dedicated to technology and life sciences. They operate in the fast lane of innovation where ideas often outpace changes in the law. That's where you find Fenwick's autonomous transportation and shared mobility practice, steering startups, technology giants, and major automotive companies through rapidly evolving legal, business, and regulatory challenges, which we talk about here on Inside Transportation all the time. A Silicon Valley original, Fenwick is a national law firm with offices in Mountain View, San Francisco, Seattle, New York, Santa Monica, and even Shanghai. So here's your call to action. Learn more about how Fenwick can help companies tackle the complex legal and business issues of autonomous transportation at Fenwick.com. That's F-E-N-W-I-C-K.com. Thanks again to Fenwick for providing great legal services to me. I use them personally uh, for, and for our investments and uh, for supporting independent media like Inside Transportation. Let's get back to this amazing episode. And we're back here on Inside Transportation with Jason Calcanis, Sonny Madra of Ford X. Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden has suggested a revival of the Cash for Clunkers program as a part of his climate plan. But there's a twist. The legislation would offer a subsidy to allow drivers to swap their less fuel-efficient vehicle for a U.S.-made electric vehicle. But... Other countries are also taking interesting approaches to expanding green transit. For example, in Italy, urban city dwellers are being offered about $600 through a reimbursement to purchase a bicycle, right? Um, so should the U.S. explore other ways we can expand green transit? Uh, Sonny, any thoughts there? Yeah, I, I, I really like um, sort of the proposal to, you know, include uh, other forms of transportation. Like, you know, we talked about micromobility earlier. I also think that, you know, this sometimes there's the focus purely on green. And I think it's sort of if if there's an expansion of it being, say, green and technology, I think that can be really good as well. You know, Jason mentioned, uh, you know, using the autopilot on his Model 3. I think if that there's a continued investment in building around self-parking technologies and, um, you know, technologies that allow the vehicle to communicate with roads, that creates, a, you know, more efficiency in the, in the broader ecosystem as well. So I'd like to see an expansion that goes just beyond sort of green vehicles as well or elect electric vehicles. Right. Any thoughts, Jason? Yeah. I mean, what do we, well, I just think we have to think as a society, what are we optimizing for here? Part of it is economic, right? We, we want to um, have uh, more economic activity. We want American companies to sell more cars. There's, that's a piece of it. We want cleaner air standards. That's a piece of it. Um, what comes to mind to me too is safety, right? And I think mm -hmm. that's a lot of the intangibles Sonny's pointing out, which I, I didn't even consider for a second there, but um, it's really great when lane departure exists on cars, and especially in the age of young people texting and driving, uh, which is like the new drunk driving, right? Like people don't drink and drive 
uh, as much as they used to, right? That's a problem we seem to have really gotten under control, uh, but they still like to text and drive. And if you have that lane departure and it gives you a little pushback or it gives you an alarm, um, and I've been in many cars that have that, and also the ability to stop if you're going to you yep. know, have a fender, yep. auto braking, like that, there's a, there's a checklist of things that would reduce debt, reduce harm, um, and those are worthy as well. We should really be trying to say, hey, how do, how do we get to zero car deaths, you know, car fatalities, um, you know, as a goal? And I think actually that's that's not a crazy goal, you know. Like we we've had years where we've had zero commercial airline deaths, right? Mm. And that's like a huge victory that just took years and years of iteration on the technology and redundancy in jets and maintenance. And one of the issues with cars is Americans have this great freedom about cars, right? You can buy a classic car from a hundred years ago and drive it down the street. You can drive whatever you want, basically down the street. People build kit cars. And, you know, maybe we need to think about that a little bit and like what is actually a safe car to have on the road in a city. Maybe cities or certain states, again, talking about states, competing with each other uh, for the feature set of that state, whether it's taxes or mobility or, uh, you know, how the city is designed, you know, maybe, you know, if you're out in the burbs or in the country, yeah, you can drive old collector cars and things that don't have anti-lock brakes. But maybe when, once you get into a city and there's a certain density, you need to have some of these features, right? Hmm. Um, that's, that's a good idea. That, that could be an interesting, kind of you know, not on the same. I mean, I have seen in Europe that, I think there's a few automakers that are making cars that will run on gas outside of the city. And then when they get into the city, they'll switch to yep. an oh. all electric uh, vehicle or the all electric uh, engine. Based yeah, on we, the GPS. We actually do right. that with the, we have a Ford Transit that does that in Europe now. So, you oh. know, there's geofences that can be created um, both by the operators and by Brilliant. the cities. And then when that happens, they flip over. But I think expanding that for for other use cases could be really really powerful. Yeah, it's super um, interesting. I, 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 that is just to me a genius idea because, you know that that's in, we always ask in the investment community or in the technology community, uh, why now? You know, and and why now? Like battery power because of smartphones has gotten so dense and all those iterations on it. But GPS also enables a lot of interesting things. And then when you think about, um, you know, just uh, mobility, we recently made a small investment in a company called Cabana, um, or I did, uh, my firm, cabana.life, you can go check it out. And they are renting, uh, mobile hotel rooms, basically. Yeah. Uh, and they're using vans, uh, it may, may even be a Ford Transit. Yeah, I'm not yeah. Sure which one I, I, I was uh, one of the seed investors too. So I, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. So I just oh, marked th- up your investment. Th- thank, thank you very much. <laughs> You're welcome. That's how it works. <laughs> no conflict, no interest. Um, and I think that this is going to be a movement, which is, you know, whether you want to go out, I think staycations, road trips, um, Airbnbs, obviously are all beneficiaries, um, you know, uh, during the pandemic. And it, we have to be able to talk about, you know, what industries win and lose during a pandemic because we're going to be facing this again. But then, as I said, you know, there's always this silver lining and there's always things that come out of a crisis, that come out of chaos, that move the world forward in a positive way, right? We're going to learn a lot of lessons uh, about washing our hands more consistently or cleaning surfaces or wearing masks, even when we just have a normal cold uh, post-pandemic. And I think van life and camping is one of the great ones. I'm seeing so many people I know on their Instagram 
you know, going on trips and RVs. And I had somebody visit the house and they were, they had rented an RV. And it's like one of the last people I would think of somebody who like, you know, normally would be, you know, flying, you know, in business class right. or yeah. first class and staying at a five-star hotel. And they're like, yeah, no, this is great. I'm out on the road. I'm like stopping. I'm going to campgrounds. And I think that's just fantastic. Do you think that's just a temporary trend? Because I've actually been thinking no. about it all week. And I was like, man, I see all these people going out camping, going to all these outdoor spaces. But how, like, is this going to stick around for like a decade? Mm. Any thoughts? Oh, it's yeah. definitely going to stick around. Yeah, 100%. So yeah, because people don't try things. Like think about food delivery or Instacart um, or Amazon, like you know, or Netflix, like there's a lot of things people just never get around to trying. But when the gym closes, you're like, maybe I will buy a Peloton and all the Pelotons sold out. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we were all making were like, fun of Peloton in December for that ad. And now, uh, <laughs> we're all on the other well, side. Exactly. Now you're on the waiting list. Yeah. Uh, and I think people are starting to realize, wait a second, I was paying like $175 a month to be an Equinox. And this thing costs 50, 60 bucks a month. And I like this more and I'll use it more. Maybe, I, you know, I, I have the tonal system at home, uh, which is like a weight system. And I have the Peloton tread and I'm thinking about getting the robot. And when I did the math on it, cause I have a little bit of space in my house for a gym cause I live in, you know, the, the burbs. I was like, wait a second. If my wife and I were had gym memberships, we'd be at, you know, in a city, it's like, I don't know, 150 bucks a month, 120 bucks a month. Right. We would be at 3000 a year, which is what people are starting to do math. And that's why ride sharing, bikes, all this stuff. Um, and just think about people who've never used Postmates or Uber Eats. Pandemic happens. They're like, I, I'm bored of cooking my own food. I would like to get food delivered from a restaurant. How do I do it again? I have to download, what is it called? DoorDash, Postmates. All of those uh, companies uh, saw massive increases. And one of them that I'm an investor in, Robinhood, saw a massive amount. And people are like, why is that? It's like, well, one of the theories is people couldn't bet on sports. And they were like, I want to bet on stocks. And people think part of the, the run-up in stocks has been young people not betting on sports saying, you know what, maybe instead of going to a casino, I'll bet on Apple or, you know, whatever, Google. Bet on Amazon, Tesla. <laughs> Disney, Tesla, whatever. Crazy place for Tesla. Stock split was actually, that happened today. Um, oh, when we're taping this, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yes. Um, one question about that, though. Do you think we even need EV incentives anymore? Do you think we really need to try to convince people to, to well, get rid of their old we're cars? We're sitting here in the midst of, you know, huge fires in the Bay Area, um, you know, and it's undeniable that it's tied to climate change. So, you know, we, we need to, we need the government and the regulators to continue to push that. So, yes, right. And unless there was some, you know, evidence that we didn't need that. So I, you know, the air has been bad. The you know, fire has been tragic, uh, seeming to accelerate. You know, I've been in the barrier for 20 years. There's more every year with bigger size. So I, I'm a, I'm a huge yes on, yes, we need, we need those and we need more incentives. Yeah, I, I am, I, I understand people's initial aversion to why should there be an incentive for things. Um, and I think collectively as a society, we have to think like, well, yeah, we should have an incentive to have cleaner air and safer cars. That's in everybody's best interest. And it does lead to, uh, you know, incentives change behavior. So I think when they're short term and they're reassessed every, you know, period of time, I'm, I'm very much in favor of them. And I think, uh, obviously Tesla was a beneficiary of those early ones, but anybody buying the early cars, it didn't matter. But it was kind of nice when I got like a 5K, I think I got on my Model 3. It was like nice. I, you know, I didn't really care. But I think it is 
the thing that mattered more, and I told you about this on an earlier episode, was when I used to go with my Roadster to uh, fly on. Uh, when I go to LAX, Sunny, they had EV parking in short term. But here's the kicker. If you had the EV sticker, it was free. You were allowed to park in short term parking for free. And you were allowed to go in the HOV lane with one person. So I love those kind of uh, things. You know, those kind of incentives may even be more um, uh, beneficial than you know, things like um, money, right? Like being able to park closer to the gate. Yeah, because if you knock $10,000 off of every EV right now, let's say someone comes in and they're like, we're knocking $10,000 off of every EV and the demand just skyrockets, right? Right now, we don't have the, the supply to make that happen. So I think a lot of the focus around these incentives to to make society greener should be around people dropping their cars completely and just going for ride-hailing service, using micro-mobility, um, using public transit, uh, versus just giving people you know money for EVs. I think we kind of have to rethink about that, right? Because if, if there was a skyrocketing of EV demand right now, the supply is not there. And we've seen that a lot of automakers are having trouble getting the supply that they need for batteries, getting the components they need for cars. Yeah, but then that makes it easy for, if you do have that demand and it's sold out, that will then drive the stock market to reward the people who have those cars and create more incentives. So again, you know, it's you have to be careful with incentives. Like there's this thing called the Cobra problem, um, which you may, have you ever heard of that, Johan? Or Sunny? Sonny, have you heard of the Cobra no, no, no. problem? Explain it. Explain it to us. <laughs> yeah, I have. Yeah, I got to explain it. Yeah. Well, I mean, give it, the listeners the, to the best right, of my yeah. recollection, um, at some point they wanted to have less Cobras um, uh, in, where was it, India or something? Um, it was some someplace in in uh, in the world and they said, you know, we'll, we'll give you like a dollar for every Cobra you bring, right? Decapitated dead Cobra. Uh, and, you know, we want to get them out of this village or whatever. It led and, to more rats or something, didn't it? Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> so, well, it led to more rats. And it also led to people breeding cobras. Yeah. Oh, geez. <laughs> and then they would bring all the cobras in. So they were literally started breeding them. So incentives are really weird things, right? Like, I mean, I actually, it was very interesting to me when they did the, it was a big controversy in New York. I remember when I was young um, because I started doing the math and I was very entrepreneurial at a young age. They, they came up with the five cent return for a can of Coke. And, you know, I used to pick up cans mm. and we were kids. We try to find cans because a can of Coke when I was a kid was 50 cents. So if you found 10 empty cans, you got a can of Coke. It was, you know, 10% of the cost of a can of Coke. Um, so it was actually kind of cool. Uh, and, you know, th- those kind of incentives can, uh, or the, the opposite incentive, charging people a dollar for a, ba- a plastic bag. You know, instead of bringing your own, look at the change that's made. My, all my cars, I don't know about you guys, are filled with reusable, you know, Whole Foods or whatever, grocery bags. I mean, I I feel shame if I take a plastic bag or a, even a paper one. It's like shameful. It's like, how dare you do that? You know, and we're sitting here 30 years ago and it was like, yeah, plastic, better, plastic, better, stronger, definitely easier to carry. Give me the plastic. Now people are like, no, I ever, how could I do that to the planet? Straws is the other big one, you know, like. I think straws are um, straws are uh, being banned. I think India actually did the biggest straw ban, and then I think 
uh, England is doing one now on the just on plastic straws, like just no reason to have them. Go go paper, you know, uh, or reusable ones, or just have sip cups. So incentives matter. Um, so I like I like experimenting with them. Great, great. Well. That's all we have for today's Inside Transportation Podcast. A big thank you to our guest, Sunny Madra, for chiming in on today's show. Um, be sure to catch the, the podcast feed because we're dropping in bonus episodes every week, different interviews with different founders, CEOs, stuff like that. So just stay tuned to the feed. There's always going to be something there for you. Um, any final words, Jason? No, I, I'm um, super uh, optimistic. Uh, about us getting out of the pandemic. I think that people are starting to uh, comply a bit more with masks and social distancing. We're starting to learn a lot more about it. Uh, I think some of the vaccines will work. The treatments are working. So even though we're seeing more cases, we're seeing less deaths. Uh, so survivability is going up. Treatments are going up. Uh, and I um, uh, believe that we're going to get to Q1 of twenty. Uh, 21, and we're going to have this amazing economic recovery and our kids are going to be able to go back to school because I think people are going to collectively um, do the right thing, you know, over the next couple of months. So I'm actually feeling positive today. <laughs> it changes by dad and how you're feeling, Johan. No, I feel, I feel the same way you do. I mean, there's some days where I'm like, man, I think this is going to go on till 2022. <laughs> and then some days yeah. where I'm like, I think Q4 of, tw- of 2020. You know what I mean? It's, it's completely possible that we could get. I think so. What about you, Sonny? How do you ever, feel? Yeah. How are you feeling? Yeah, I've, I, I'm in the the boat that you know Jason just shared. I think you know there's a lot of energy. Um, you know, people are starting to comply. I think people are starting to realize um, that you know there's a way out of this. And you know, in many ways, um, I think the response that the U.S. had. Um, it, it took a longer time and tragically lots of deaths came from it. But I think because it took a bit longer um, and the data just came out today, if you look at Spain and other places where they, they, they didn't factor in the second wave, I think we're going to be in a stronger place in the U.S. than the rest of the world. So I'm very optimistic about the U.S. response in particular. The 15-minute test came out last week from Abbott. I think that's a game changer Huge as game well. Changer, so yeah. you, know, you, you, you can't deny the U.S. industrial, you know, technology, medical complex that's going to, you know, get us through this. So uh, go I, founders, I, I think we're go entrepreneurs. Very, very bullish. Yes, yeah. go founders. Do, exactly. Do your work. <laughs> yeah, I think those rapid tests are awesome because I can totally see people using them like outside of a ball game, um, using them outside of schools. And it takes like 15 minutes to uh, get your results back. I have been invited to many parties. Mm-hmm. I have not gone to them. But I have been invited to many parties where uh, people are, and when I say party, I mean like, I would say they varied from 20 to 50 people outside, you know, maybe a little bit inside on the margins, but certainly more people than you would think you should have at a party. Um, And uh, they were, somebody sent me that in Los Angeles, they had gone to a party and they did like the blood print uh, prick test and you had to wait outside for 15 minutes to go to the party. And uh, I don't know what the exact rules are in Los Angeles, but it seemed to me like maybe they were going to the next phase a little bit earlier because of the testing. Wow. Right? Uh, and if you look at the the bubble uh, for the NBA, what a tremendous success that is. Yeah. Now, they have a testing ability, uh, temperature check-in, all the stuff that, you know, if you have unlimited resources, which they do essentially, right? Because it, it, 
the NBA prints money. They have so much resources that they were able to, uh, there was a great daily podcast from the New York Times where they talked to the writer and they had to go in and check their, they had to go in and get tested every day. They had to check their temperature on an app and they would wear these, um, like I think RFID or Bluetooth bracelets. And if you got within six feet of another person, the alarm went off. Wow. Because it had a proximity detector. So they said when all the press would get on a bus to go somewhere, uh, when they first got on the bus, it was like all chirping. And then everybody would spread out and the chirping would stop. Uh, and so all of that technology is there. And if you go onto your iPhone right now and you search in your settings, and you just type COVID, you'll see your COVID settings are already in your iPhone for testing, for tracing. Really? Huh. Yes. Go search for Nobody knows this. You go search for COVID. You'll see it's right there. And then it says... Which app would you like to authorize? No apps have been made because the way we did it in the United States was we said the states make the app. In other countries, they did it federally, right? So like in Singapore and Korea, I know people in Taiwan, all of the apps were federal apps. So the infrastructure was built months ago. This was in, I think, iPhones three months ago. Wow. Yeah, and I see it on my did iPhone. Did you do it right yeah, now? Yeah, it's on there. Isn't that it's weird? Crazy. Everybody <laughs> who doesn't know this, you do a search for COVID and it's like, what app? And it's like, oh, we don't have an app in California for this. But if you had one, you could get notifications. Exposure logging is off. When I go to turn it on, it says you cannot turn on exposure logging without an authorized app installed that can send exposure notifications. Um, when enabled, iPhone can exchange random IDs with other devices using Bluetooth. The random IDs on your device collect on your device collects are stored in an exposure log for 14 days. This exposure log allows an app you authorize to notify you if you have been exposed to COVID-19, if you're diagnosed, active apps, no apps. And so that's it. How do you think we're going to distribute the vaccine, by the way? Do you have any insights on that? Because it's like, you know, the fact that people weren't able to get hand sanitizer and PPE for the longest time and and people talk about this vaccine almost like it's a magic potion. It's definitely right? going to go to the hotspots. It's definitely going to go to the hotspots because I think the government bought all of them, right? So the logical thing to do would just be go, where is the highest test load? Where's the, where, where are people dying the most? Where are people getting hospitalized the most? And just go to those regions, go to those zip codes. And then you combine that with 15-minute testing. You could do, like New York did, you know, a 1,000-person sample or do a 100-person sample in every zip code in Florida and Texas you know, the major ones. And then if you have outbreaks, you do test and trace in that area. And then you also send the vaccine there. Mm. And then all of a sudden that's how you start containing and, I, and containing. Yeah, and I do like think the there's infrastructure bubble. around distribution. Like, you know, the flu vaccine is distributed to like 50 million people every year. So, you know, the, the Walgreens, the CVS of the world, uh, if you combine that with uh, what yeah. you know Jason is saying, I think you can you can really handle it because there is a there is a way there's a precedent there. I think this just doesn't exist when everyone goes out and tries to buy hand sanitizer. I say yeah. vaccine I to, shots in the Taco Bell drive-thru. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually think uh, a great way to do this, and I, I said this earlier, was you know to say, hey, if you um, the government should say anybody who comes and gets tested and you know is part of that panel. They should just put it outside of Starbucks or cafes and give anybody who gets tested a $5 gift card. It helps the economy. People get tested and then they can go in and get themselves a, you know, a Starbucks or whatever your local cafe is and just give them like five pay people to take the tests. Right. And then people on the way to work, be like, you know, yeah, okay, I'll swab it. Yeah. It's going to take me 15 minutes, but I get five bucks. I'll pay for my coffee. I'll do it. Boom. Like that would be a smart maneuver, but you know, the, 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 I think the overarching, um, you know, discussion we had today is really about governance. And, and you, 
we have a very unique governance system with 50 states that are very disparate in how they look at the world. So, you know, in one state, you know, uh, speeding, you know, and, and what the highway speed is might be very different than others. Enforcement of jaywalking in Santa Monica, I learned <laughs> very early as a New Yorker, was enforced. Really? Like I got my first <laughs> ticket, like in the first two weeks in Santa Monica. And I was, I looked at the cop perplexed and he's like, can I have your driver's license? I'm like, why do you want my driver's license? He's like, you just jaywalked. I was like, okay. Um. <laughs> he's like, I'm giving you a ticket. I'm giving you a citation. And I was like, Really? He's like, yeah, you can't walk in the street here. You could get hurt. And I was like, ah, you know, I'm a New Yorker. He's like, yeah, we get that all the time. And he gave him my New York driver's license. Then, then he was going to give me another ticket. He goes, how long have you been here? I was like, ah, I've been here like six months. I've been here like a year and a half, whatever. He's like, you don't have a California driver's license and you're driving? I'm like, well, I'm not driving right now. He's like, you know, you have, I think you have like six months or 12 months if you move to California to change your driver's license over. And I didn't know that either. So, but you know, New York, they you literally could cross it. A hundred people would jaywalk in front of a police officer and not think anything of it. In Santa Monica, everybody knows, you'll see no cars in Santa Monica and 10 people just waiting on the corner for the lights to change. And the New Yorker would go crazy <laughs> That's epic. with that. Same in Japan. Yeah, It's so epic. I should have kept the ticket. I was like so excited about that <laughs> ticket. There's only one other ticket I got in my life that was a better ticket which was I was sitting at the Warriors game and I happened to have very good seats and I was giving uh, the coach of the Warriors a hard time, Steve Carr, because he left the starters in versus my Knicks and they had run up the score. And I said, you, know, you don't have to run up the store with your starters. You should bench your starters now. Like any good coach would bench their starters. And like the security guard came over to me, handed me a red ticket and on it said, this is your first and final warning. If you t if you talk to the players or coaches, wow. blah, 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 we will ask you to leave the we will remove you from the stadium, and I still have it somewhere in my desk. I gotta go find it. <laughs> <laughs> and it was our I'll just leave it at this. It was our mutual yeah, friend's okay. seats, oh, yeah, Sonny, yeah, so yeah. you know how good Which those are, seats are. <laughs> They're very. Exactly. Put it way, Steve Kerr heard exactly what I said. Add Diz, add did everybody else on the bench. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> that was a pretty good ticket. Well, yeah. well, well. That's right. a good well, way to wrap been great. it. Good way to wrap. Good it. way to wrap. Send us your best ticket. Tell us your best ticket. Best story. ticket at Jason yeah. at Dude Johan. <laughs> um, what's your What's your Twitter handle, Sunny? At Sundeep. There you go. We'll Ooh, see. First name club. We'll see you all next week. Thanks. Take care. Yep. Bye. Is it? Oh, that was fun.